Hello, I'm Paul Evans and welcome to Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain. This edition has been funded by the Big Lottery Funds Awards for All programme in Northern Ireland. It is estimated that some preterm infants will have 20-25 such procedures a day in their period of intensive care. The people who seem to do badly as far as pain is concerned is the very elderly, so over 85, it would be men, racial minorities and those with memory problems. From cradle to grave, the extremes of life when for some of us we will or have been at our most vulnerable. How is pain assessed and managed in those two groups and what common issues do they share for the healthcare professionals? Dr Pamela Bell is Chair of the Pain Alliance of Northern Ireland and a former lead clinician for pain services at the Belfast Trust. She's an anaesthetist and some years ago she and some of her colleagues set up a master's course at Queen's University Belfast in the science and practice of pain for healthcare professionals. One of the modules they teach covers pain for those vulnerable groups at the extremes of life. When one tries to assess pain for most people, it's a question of asking some questions and receiving answers. For those who are very young and uh, pre-verbal, the neonate and the infant and very young children, that is not a very reasonable way to proceed. Similarly, those who have dementia uh, may not be in a position to communicate their pain in the way that is easily assessed using commonly used pain tools. And as such, we felt that there was perhaps a discrimination against those at the end or the beginning of life in that their their pain was not being addressed in the way that um, it would be were they able to communicate their pain in the usual way. So basically, I, as a middle-aged man, and for the last 50-odd years, I have been able to tell you about my pain. Before that, I would have had problems. Before that, you would have had a lot of problems. And in fact, there was a belief that, um, for example, newborn infants did not suffer pain in the way that we do. Uh, Infants, of course, cry. Crying per se is not necessarily an indication of pain. It could be hunger or um, being too hot or too cold. So healthcare professionals and doctors must take some responsibility for this, and anaesthetists, I might add, uh, were often very reluctant to use painkillers, particularly strong painkillers, when infants had surgery. This was really a state of affairs that existed even as late as the 1970s to 80s. And in fact, one of the things that I read to my students when they first come on the course is a little paragraph from an American book, in fact, uh, where a mother writes about her experience uh, of having an infant who needed to have heart surgery and speaking to the anaesthetist afterwards uh, about his distress and why he hadn't had more pain relief. And the anaesthetist said, well, I didn't really think that uh, children this young have much by way of pain, therefore they don't get much by way of pain relief. We now know from research that this is far from the truth and that the consequences of pain in very young uh, infants can be more 
than for similar operations in older children because the neonate has a very immature nervous system and responds more dramatically to pain than older children and, uh, and adults will. Pamela Bell. Now, I want to return to that discredited thought that babies do not experience pain. Neuroscientist Mariah Fitzgerald is Professor of Developmental Neurobiology at University College London. Her main research interest is in how the central nervous system develops in infants and children. It was considered that since we have no overt memory or recall of events that take place when we're young, and among that we do not recall any tissue damaging or noxious or painful stimulation, that really meant that it wasn't a concern, that if a baby did experience pain, they certainly didn't remember it, so that maybe that didn't matter very much. But the early 80s brought a series of really pioneering studies carried out by scientists, mainly in Canada, actually, but also in the UK and elsewhere, that showed that there were a range of behaviours in very, very young infants that were specific to what we would describe as a painful stimulus. And it became clear that really even premature infants, and by that I mean infants, the earliest viable age is, I suppose, 24, 25 weeks gestation. So from that age onwards, infants were clearly able to show a set of behaviours which were special to a painful stimulus. And that really changed the whole climate, if you like, the recognition that this could not be ignored. And because we don't remember something doesn't mean that it isn't important that it's taking place. Importantly also, it could be that those painful events may be altering the normal development of the nervous system, and that's a very important aspect of, of thinking about this. So talking about premature babies, it's in that period, in the special care units, that they get poked and prodded, mm. tubes pushed down them, needles, blood tests, a lot is happening. Exactly, and in fact... A number of papers that have very carefully monitored the number of interventions that these tiny premature infants get. If you simply ask medical staff, which of those interventions do you consider painful? Would you feel was painful if it was carried out on, on yourself? It is estimated that some preterm infants will have 20, 25 such procedures a day in their period of intensive care. Now, I want to emphasise, and I'm, I'm sure everyone will realise, this isn't being done callously or deliberately in any way. This is as a result of the clinical care that the babies require in order to stay alive and certainly to develop normally. The difficulty is that we don't understand enough about this pain and we also don't understand enough how to alleviate it, how to treat it in a way that is safe for a very young baby. So, for instance, filling the baby up with morphine may not be a good idea. It may affect their respiration. It may affect other aspects of their physiology. So it's a question of the medical and scientific community facing up to this and learning how to measure it 
and thinking of good ways to try and alleviate the pain. So what research do you do and what does it show? Okay, so there's two strands to my research. In the laboratory, we use animal models of infant pain and also we uh, look at individual neurons and circuits and we study the development of the pain circuits. But we also have a whole branch of research where we collaborate with neonatologists and we try and measure in these preterm infants what it is that's actually going on in their brain when they are undergoing what we would consider painful procedures. So these procedures have to be done. They're done for clinical reasons and we would never, ever stimulate a baby just experimentally. So we tap into the existing clinical procedures and we measure activity in the brain. And we measure it in two ways. One is using a technique called EEG or electroencephalography, which many people will have come across already, where electrodes are put on the scalp. They don't, they don't hurt. They're not invasive. They're just placed on the scalp. And the activity that's going on in the brain underlying the scalp can be monitored. That's one method. And the other method is a what's called a hemodynamic method where optodes, infrared optodes, are placed again just on the scalp. They're not invasive in any way. And they measure the blood flow and the oxygenation of blood under the optodes. But that's the blood in the brain that they're measuring. So these are two techniques that can be used at the cot side on the ward and they can directly measure brain activity. So I mentioned earlier that a lot of work has been done on the behaviour of these babies, but this is a more direct measure of what activity is going on in the brain in response to, let's say, an example would be a needle puncturing the skin or a lance, such as the kind of lance that diabetics have to use, is a procedure that is often used on very young babies because they need to have blood samples taken really often and their blood gases measured. So this is a routine, painful procedure which we can tap into, if you like, and see what activity is occurring in the brain. And we've been able to show that even the very youngest infant shows a very strong activity in the neurons in their brain, very immature brains, but very strong activity to every noxious stimulus. But the pattern of that activity changes as they grow up, which is not surprising. So the research that we do is to try and unravel those changes, to understand them better, and hopefully perhaps to be able to use those as a way to monitor their pain and investigate methods of alleviating that pain. We can't remember in adult life. I can't remember having blood tests taken when I was a baby. We can't remember it. But is it being imprinted in the brain yeah. that will affect us later? That's a very good question. So neuroscientists think of memory in two ways. There's the memory that that is normally used in general conversation. And actually what that means is active recall, that you can actively recall an event. But you're quite right, there's another type of memory, which you call imprinting, which is a good way of thinking it, which is that changes have been made in the nervous system, which do not involve active recall, but which will lead to altered patterns of activity in future life. 
in animal models, because we don't know that it happens in man, but in animal models, a small noxious stimulation in the early part of life does have an imprinting effect on the nervous system such that if the animal, when it grows up, has the same stimulus again, it reacts in a more exaggerated way than the animal that's never had it before. So it's as if a pain history, if you like, but from a critical stage of development, stays with you in the nervous system. So that is a form of memory. Even though you can't recall it, it has changed you and it stays with you. But are you saying that what happens at that early stage in life can affect things like neuropathic pain? This we don't know, and I think it's a very interesting question. Is it possible that your developmental history, pain history, if you like, might actually influence your propensity to develop chronic pain. And that is a, a, a big research question that we simply don't know the answer to. So I wouldn't like to speculate on that, but it's a reasonable hypothesis. It wouldn't be the only factor. There'd be genetic factors, many other factors. But it is possible that your early life pain experience does make you possibly more or less vulnerable to the onset of chronic pain, but there isn't strong evidence either way. That's Mariah Fitzgerald, Professor of Developmental Neurobiology at University College London. Now, 56 years ago, I had an operation for a condition called pyloric stenosis. Today, it's done by keyhole surgery. But the scar down my abdomen is evidence of a procedure that was considerably more invasive. So how would doctors have judged my pain? Anaesthetist Pamela Bell. I think they would have listened to your crying and I think your parents would have noted how your behaviour changed. Uh, for example, some children uh, who've just had surgery on their tummies don't move because it's just too painful and so therefore they lie very still. And if your mum and dad were used to kicking your arms and legs, they would notice a difference. And in fact, some of these changes, which were maybe not always interpreted as pain, have made their way into the form of assessment of pain in infants and children. So while there are many, many different pain assessment tools out there, those that are used after surgery look at things such as crying, uh, facial expressions such as screwing up the eyes or the shape of the mouth, the general movement of the body, whether the legs are kicking or, or not. And these are scored by the healthcare professional, the nurses usually looking after the infant. And uh, as a result, a determination is made of the likely level of pain that that child is experiencing. And the best of these scales have been rigorously tested in a number of institutions and show that when pain relief is then given, the score falls. In other words, the behaviours, the crying, the grimacing alter in the direction of a lower score. So we think that, that many of these scores have been well validated. So if now, it were to happen and you had an infant undergoing similar surgery, you would work with the nurses to assess that pain. 
because most mothers and fathers can recognise the different cries of, of, of their baby as feeding, tiredness, wet nappy, pain, and so should work with the anaesthetists. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And the more experienced the parent, the easier that will be. I know first-time mums often find it really quite difficult to know what's happening in terms of the cry at first, and it is a learning process. So as they observe their infants, they learn for themselves to distinguish the type of cry that is likely to indicate pain in their infant. Can young children like that develop chronic pain conditions? What has been shown by some studies, for example, of circumcision in uh, infancy, is that if pain is not well managed at the time of operation, in later life the child can go on to experience more pain with a given procedure than they would have had their pain been well managed at the time. And there are other studies looking at vaccination, pain and so on and so forth. So there is, there is some evidence out there that failing to, to care for pain in young infants has a long-term impact. Dr Pamela Bell. Now, I'll just remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound, based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, this edition of Airing Pain is looking at pain management at those at the extremes of life and moving from those at the start of life's journey to those approaching the end, similar issues are faced by those trying to assess and therefore manage a patient's pain. Professor Peter Passmore is Professor of Ageing and Geriatric Medicine at Queen's University Belfast. His main clinical and research interest is dementia. It's fascinating to hear how Pamela deals with those very, very young children. There are difficulties eliciting uh, you know, from them wh- whether they're in pain or not or how bad it is or what might be going on. And you put it in context of somebody that I see, well, particularly with dementia, where if they seem to be not right, shall we say, for, for whatever reason, one of the causes for that can be pain. Uh, and I think it's very important to be aware of that and to detect it and try and deal with it if you think that's what the, what the problem is. And then the, the issues around uh, management in, in children and in very old people are slightly similar because when it comes to management, you like to be able to refer to an evidence base. And for older people uh, in general, for many treatments, we don't have a decent evidence base with good clinical trials. That's particularly the case for pain. Uh, and the same can be said for, for the pain and dementia issue. I suppose a major part of that are for people in nursing homes with dementia yes. and the staff looking after them. Aye, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think it's really thinking about having an awareness that, that, that pain could be a problem. And, uh, you know, and, and it, you know it, it, it's, it involves a number of people. And you're absolutely right. It does depend on the location that older people find themselves. So it applies to people at home. And again, if they have cognitive impairment or memory difficulties or dementia, it may be the carer that you're relying on who knows them. 
um, who one would look to to get an indication of, of what, what, what might be going on. But equally well, there are large, large, large numbers of older people now in the independent sector, in residential homes, in nursing homes. And many, many, many have dementia. Many of them are not diagnosed with dementia. And I think we know for a fact the statistics would seem to indicate that perhaps in those people, two-fifths to a half might be in pain at any one time, but about two-fifths are on any form of treatment. So from a medical perspective, we can treat the situation if it's brought to our attention. And this is where you've mentioned, you know, the staff in the nursing homes to have them educated and upskilled in some way about this awareness thing and also maybe how to assess pain a little so that they should bring you can bring it to medical um, attention in case medication is required but also it could be you know if it's not medication it may be that the physiotherapist would be important or the occupational therapist so it's a multidisciplinary uh, approach and it doesn't always mean drugs often does mean medication but it doesn't always mean that but the key thing at the outset would be that there's this awareness detection thing needs to be there. And, and, and I think the problem is that that's very variable. If I were looking after one of my parents, I've known my parents for 56 yeah. years, I would recognise mm-hmm. different things, mm-hmm. as Pamela was saying, with babies. Yeah. Parent recognises different movements, stiffening, mm-hmm. this, that, the other. But somebody in a care home, my father was in a care mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. they are being looked after by various people coming in who don't know the real person. You're absolutely right when you say it's about knowing people. Because uh, I think if you, if you take the person with, exam- with dementia, for example, and the pain guidelines or pain assessment guidelines that are there, what is key is that we should look at the patient first and attempt to elicit from them whether they're in pain or not. And, I mean, certainly people with even more advanced dementia can often indicate whether that or is, is or isn't likely to be the case. But if you're not able to get this, if the communication is a problem, then you're moving to a more observation uh, sort of mode. And that you're absolutely right in what you say. It's the change in the person that's key. It's a change in some sort of behaviour, some of which are easier to sort of think they'd be associated with pain, perhaps the fidgeting or people being noisy or shouting or, you know, this sort of thing. But equally well, people can go from loud to quiet and, and you know, this, this can be a feature of old people. So uh, there can be atypical responses to pain. And I think this is where the knowing of the individual is, is probably fairly critical. And I think, you know, when, when, for example, in the home situation, when the carers are there, it would be foolish of us to really ignore if a carer comes along and sort of would say, well, look, I think they could be uh, in pain here. And, you know, it often is the case if, uh, like, the, the pain just doesn't, doesn't suddenly arise. These are chronic, painful conditions. So we know probably in quite a percentage of people that there is a pain-causing condition there um, in the background. Uh, therefore, if there is a change, I think what one normally looks at, you know, what's the list of complaints here or what are the medical complaints? And if there's a pain-causing condition, well, again, it seems a bit daft to ignore what's staring you in the face, really. But is it all too easy to put somebody down as a grumpy old man? <laughs> Say, put me down as a grumpy old, irascible old man, mm-hmm. in actual fact. I'm a mild-mannered man who's turned grumpy, mm-hmm. but they can't see that. I think that's right, and it comes back to knowing about the patient. I mean, it would be, I think, the efforts aimed at uh, trying to deal with, say, some... Uh, if people have behavioural abnormalities or, you know, that, that people are behaving irrationally, for want of a better word, 
that's also where it comes to to knowing about the patient. So you'd like to think if you if you were somewhere, people might have some sort of a dossier about you. You know, what are your likes and dislikes? What were you like? And then if it comes over clearly, well, look, here's someone who has been mild-mannered all the way along, and then this is an overt change. Again, that's, that should set you to thinking, you know. I mean, it's interesting, the people who seem uh, from an American study uh, a few years ago to do badly as far as pain is concerned is the very elderly. So over 85, it would be men. So you mentioned about being a grumpy old man. Um, racial minorities and those with memory problems. So I think, you know, you ought to be in a situation where you're nearly looking out for those because the odds seem to be stacked against people to start with. You know, you may well be a grumpy old man, but the number of times people say to you, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm in pain again, but sure, you know, goes with the territory. You know, it's part and parcel of where I'm at age-wise and what should I expect? Well, chronic pain, because that's often what we're talking about, which I'll flare up in a way, chronic pain often there in the background. In the older people, there's such, a, such an influence on things like mood, things like sleep, things like wanting to get up and walk around and do the things you normally do or be able to, you know, get yourself dressed and that sort of thing. So the the, the actual pain itself has an impact way beyond. So in terms of when you're trying to deal with it, in dealing with the pain, you're also hoping that you have an impact, and some studies have shown this, on people's sleep, people's function, and people's mood. And you can see when you've had an effective, uh, you know, pain approach um, work, you know, when it works, it does make a huge difference to people right across those facets, not just easing the pain, but it's also the sequelae of that pain. And I think they're much more profound in older people than, than in younger people. You've been heavily involved in educating nursing home staff mm-hmm. in how to recognise pain mm-hmm. in people. What's your conclusions there? What do you tell them? They do seem very keen to want to learn. You know, if you run a study day for nursing home staff, you know, if you've got so many spaces, you're probably having to turn people away. And I think they really, really, really appreciate that. And let's face it, they have their continual professional development to do as well as the rest of it. I'm just not sure how well it's normally um, catered for. So you welcome the enthusiasm. They are busy people. So it's, it's maybe working with them to try for them come up with some sort of solution in terms of, uh, well, a valid measure of a valid way of assessing uh, people uh, for pain and one that can be done in, in, in a, it's, it has to be fairly quick and fairly practical. You know, it's not detracting from their working day because they're very, very, very busy people, as we know. So I think it needs to be some sort of scale that's quick and easy to apply and that does have some meaning. Uh, and then if it flags up the possibility of pain, further assessment would happen. If one intervenes, then be nice to go back and sort of look at the same thing and see that it's actually improved. You know, you may get a subjective view. The patient's not doing this or they're not doing that. And actually, you know, they're sleeping better so we think we've done it but it's, you know if there's a pain assessment uh, sort of situation there and it's possible to redo it or reapply it after you've gone with any intervention then then I think that's good so I think those are the general messages to try and get over and point out of course that they are dealing a lot with dementia and these people don't have the communication um, you know, have great communication so it's very important to treat them in a special way uh, to try and get the information from them those would be the sort of areas uh, or principles that you try to get across. Peter Passmore, Professor of Ageing and Geriatric Medicine at Queen's University, Belfast. Don't forget that you can download all the previous editions of Airing Pain or obtain CD copies direct from Pain Concern.
If you'd like to put a question to Pain Concerns panel of experts or just make a comment about these programmes, then please do so via our blog, message board, email, Facebook, Twitter or pen and paper. All the contact details are at our website, which is painconcern.org.uk. So, to end this edition of Airing Pain, I ask anaesthetist Dr Pamela Bell for her advice to a parent whose child has had or is facing the prospect of surgery. Talk to the doctors and nurses who are going to be looking after the child. Ask them what tools they use to assess pain and ask how you can help in the process of monitoring your child after surgery and helping to highlight, if you like, how you feel your child's pain is. You will have noticed with your your infant that their behaviour changes when they're in pain. And if you can reflect that to the healthcare professionals looking after the child, then uh, you will be well on your way to ensuring that the pain is well assessed and therefore well treated. And advice to a health professional, listen to mum and dad? Absolutely, absolutely. They will have monitored their child's behaviour over time. And since you can't ask the infant how their pain score is, utilise the parent's experience as part of your assessment tool when you're dealing with this child after surgery.